Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Well, good morning, everybody. I am excited for this morning um, because we get to finish off this series of Unhurried Rhythms. But before we do that, I need to make note, I was made fun of for using an old man podium today. But what they don't know is I'm hoping for a little bit of that osmosis, trying to get some of that wisdom from founding pastor Bob Cherry. I'm looking forward to today, guys. We've got uh, an amazing series that we've been spending the last seven weeks in on unhurried rhythms. This idea of putting things in place, practices, a rule of life that allows us to grow closer to God. And as I start off today, I want to do just a little recap. Uh, help you guys understand where we were, what we've done, and how we finished today off. So the first week in this series, we did just that. We talked about unhurried rhythms. We, we talked about establishing a rule of life, again, so that we can be in alignment with where God is desiring for us to be with him. We went through a layer of prayer and how we can focus our thoughts, our prayer life in alignment with Jesus and the prayer life he had. We talked about scripture for two weeks where being in the word allows us to understand his will. We talked about silence and solitude, most importantly, in conjunction with technology where every ding of our phone is a distraction from us experiencing peace in Jesus. We talked about a Sabbath, true rest and understanding what it looks like to abide in the Father therein. And last week, it came in pretty hot and heavy with some fellowship and community, right? It did. Well, today, as Corbin mentioned, I get to bring us to a close on this. We're finishing up this series with a practice that is well-known and arguably most regularly practiced, but in my opinion, it is most rushed through. It's communion. You see, communion is a normal part of what we do Sunday after Sunday every year. It's an essential theological belief of NECC to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's so much more than this, just that, than just taking the bread when instructed to, drinking the juice when instructed to, or meditating on a verse on the screen. See, in order, in order to understand the fullness that God intended for us to experience with communion, we have to understand where did it even come from? Where does this practice originate? So, come with me all the way back to the 5th century BC where Passover is celebrated for the very first time. See, Moses was led by God to intervene in the Egyptian ruler with Pharaoh. And this is where we're introduced to that oh-so-familiar quote. Does anybody know it? Let my people go. Through nine various plagues, Moses urges Pharaoh to let God's people go, but the attempts only lead to a hardened heart. And when the tenth and final plague was foretold, it's promised that the death angel would be passing through, claiming the firstborn of every family, unless... The door on the frames were marked with Moses' instructions. That's where we pick up today in Exodus chapter 12. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, 
Go at once and select the animal for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of your door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. A little bit of history here, just so you guys can see some of the illusions that are happening. The Passover lamb, a.k.a. Jesus, is, is being foretold. Not only that, there was a branch of hyssop, hyssop branches that are dipped inside of the blood here that's also referenced during Jesus' crucifixion. During what they are, are the torture of him, they are dipping hyssop branches in soured wine, spreading across his back. I just, I love, I geek out on that stuff. It's kind of fun. But with this, the first Passover took place. Moses and Aaron are instructed to leave Egypt, take their people with them. And from this point forward, the Israelites were to commemorate what took place. They were to commemorate that for generation after generation through the festival of unleavened bread. On the 14th day of the first month or the Jewish month of Nisan through the evening of the 21st day. So generation after generation, a tradition took place. Discarding of yeast, eating unleavened bread, meats, and bitter herbs. Commemorating the new covenant with God and his people. There's a Seder meal uh, behind me. This is tradition for uh, Jewish culture and the Messianic Jews to celebrate still this Passover. The meal consists of matzah bread. It's a giant unsalted cracker that's used to remember how quickly the Israelites were to leave Egypt. There's a lamb shank that is used to represent the sacrificial lamb's blood on the door. An apple wine nut mixture that's representing hard work and the mortar that was used uh, to build the Egyptian kingdom through slavery. A vegetable that's dipped into salt water representing growth. A bitter herb or horseradish representing the harshness of slavery. A hard-boiled egg representing the lamb that was slaughtered at the temple. A saltwater bowl that represents the sweat and tears of slaves and those that lost their firstborns. Sometimes, not pictured here, but an orange is used to welcome the outsider for a first Seder meal. And last but not least, there are four cups of wine representing promises found throughout Exodus. You have the cup of sanctification, the cup of deliverance, the cup of redemption, and the cup of hope or restoration. Traditions are such a unique piece of our being, our culture, right? We celebrate life with family through traditions. We mourn through family traditions, and we have plain old fun with traditions. Uh, take, for example, my family and I have established this new tradition every Christmas season to make the great Christmas gingerbread house bake-off. It will be on Netflix soon, and uh, we celebrate this around Christmas time. The grandkids get together, and we build our best gingerbread houses and uh, I don't know if you can tell, there wasn't a clear winner, but most of it ended up on the table. The 4th of July, we celebrate Independence Day. And I don't know about you guys, but that wild side nest comes out, and we decide it's great to just blow everything we can up. Check this out. Yep. Oh, look out, look out. Yes. Mortars are a thing, and I would not recommend playing with them. Every November, myself and several other guys, we come together, we commemorate the hunting season by reliving a moment I will never forget, and I have a crazy laugh in this, you can make fun of it later, but watch this out. Don't get my seat dirty. <laughs> oh, 
he went all the way in. I mean, <laughs> from my cousin's perspective, when he was looking down at the guy in the water, it looked like he said, save me, Jesus, somebody get me out of this, it's too cold. Traditions are fun, right? Traditions, they hold history. They hold historical values for our families and a meaning to life. Now, what if I were to tell you this Christmas, though, as you're making your gingerbread houses and you're hanging lights around the gutters of your house, that you now should actually do that in remembrance of me? Better yet, better yet, this is probably more fitting. St. Patty's Day is around the corner. Um, you put on your grain, you live out your best Irish lifestyle, and you do so in remembrance of me, not because I've got a leprechaun beard, but because I just said to. It's crazy, right? It's ridiculous to think that. Now, now imagine with me celebrating a traditional Passover meal, something that had been done and commemorated for north of 1,200 plus years, and... Jesus Christ himself at the table with his disciples says, take and eat this bread and drink this juice in remembrance of me. At this time for Jesus to have said this, the boldness and the audacity that it would take for him to do this, to take on that sacred ritual, a tradition, a piece of history, and the Passover meal would have been heresy. With the items that I just mentioned in that typical Seder meal, I want to make note of when Jesus is actually doing this, though. When he's making the claim to eat and drink of me. You see, Jesus is taking the third cup here in Matthew 26, 27, and instead of pouring out the wine like a traditional Seder leader would into the disciples' cups along the table, he takes and pours it into his one cup. And he says, you... Peter, you, James, take of mine. This would have been really, really weird for the disciples in this moment. They may not have known exactly what was happening in that moment, but just like that, the blood of the new covenant was being represented right in front of their eyes. For the first time, they didn't take and drink from their own cup. They drank from the cup that was offered to them through Jesus. Early Christians celebrate, uh, celebrated the Lord's Supper as a full meal, very traditionally like the, the Seder meal. But in, by the third century, it had ceased to be this banquet and had become more of a ritualized small meal instead. Stephen Shisley examines how the Lord's Supper transitioned from a full meal to a ritual in his biblical view column, from supper to sacrament, how the Last Supper evolved. And Shisley goes on to explain that in the first and second centuries, Christians usually gathered in individual homes for a communal, a communal evening meal to commerce and commemorate the Lord's Supper. It sounds familiar, right, to that, that Seder gathering that our Jewish culture celebrates still. Although these meals generally fostered community, there were times where it started to lead to disagreements within the church, discord within each other and personnel, and more often than not, debauchery. You see, such misuses of the Lord's Supper factored into communion, becoming more controlled and structured in the Christian church. Communion became less of a meal and more of a ritual through this. According to Cyprian, a third century bishop, Christians in Carthage regularly gathered as one large assembly, like we are right now, at the morning 
of an altar for the Eucharist sacrifice. And they did so in buildings that were devoted to religious activities. You see, the growing size of the Christian community and the desire for all local Christians to meet often necessitated this formal religious structure larger than a house to facilitate communion. This is what likely contributed to the Lord's Supper becoming a ritualized meal instead of inviting someone to your house. You know, it's funny to me, it's only fitting that through sin, eating um, was, uh, sin was committed by eating, but then the remedy for sin would be through eating again. You see, communion is so much more than just these elements that we talk about and take each week. It's a celebration of a covenant between us and the new sacrificial lamb. It's an invitation, right? Jesus is offering salvation through this to everyone. But you have to make a choice to accept the salvation, to accept that cup. So what does it actually look like to commune with God, right? How do we make a rule of life out of this, right? If if communion is more than just taking elements, this bread and the juice and, and meditating on scripture, what does it mean, John? How do we do this? Well, if I were to simplify communion down to four core practices or opportunities, this is what I would say. Communion is a time to listen to God. It's a time to talk to God, a time to repent, and an opportunity to live out of the truth or the covenant of forgiveness. I want to break each one of these down today because these practices, I believe, are something that we can do outside of the church. We don't have to just partake in this uh, idea of communion with elements on Sunday in our corporate worship setting, but we can create and cultivate rhythms of life through our day-to-day. So the first one, communion being a time to listen to God. You see, the voice of God is referred in the Bible in many different ways. From the experiences that we read about with Adam and Eve walking alongside hand in hand with God, to God speaking to Noah and Moses, directing him to lead his people, from him speaking directly to the prophets, to the deeply rooted relationship with Jesus and his father. See, all of these examples shed one simple truth to me, and that is that God desires and he deeply longs for this intimate relationship with his creation. He desires a relationship with you and with me. The idea of hearing God's voice may sound a little bit foreign or a little bit unfamiliar or abstract to you, but God reveals himself in many different ways. If we look back at the story of Elijah, God spoke to him in an extremely unique way. Before we jump into that story, I do want to kind of help understand what Elijah has done up to this point. You see, Elijah has had a really good run at leading the Israelite people and trusting in where God's direction was leading him. He had just finished decimating Queen Jezebel's religious community by personally executing not one, not two, not three, but 400 prophets of Baal and opposing God. And as a result of Elijah's actions... Jezebel demanded his head on a platter. So like any sane person, myself included, Elijah flees. He leaves. He escapes what would be most certain death with these people. And that's where we pick up today's story. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. 
For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, God being, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by in a great uh, and strong wind toward the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Now, the story of Elijah may seem a bit far-fetched, right? With God creating wind and earthquake and fire only to speak to Elijah through a low whisper. But the Israelites were accustomed to God showing up in those three prior ways. They were accustomed to God showing up in the elements. Moses himself experienced it in a burning bush. So instead of God portraying something that he would have expected, he came to him in a low whisper. God surprised Elijah with how he chose to reveal himself. You know, it makes me wonder how often we fall into that same temptation. We sit waiting for God to show up in some anticipated or expected way that we become too distracted to hear his low whisper. To be unaltered by the voice that's calling us because we're, we're not expecting it or, or we're oblivious to hearing it. A quick show of hands. How many of you guys have ever seen Bruce Almighty? It's a classic I love this movie. It's silly. And, and regardless, what I love about it is the beginning parts where Bruce is driving and he's trying to call out to God and he asks him to give him a signal. And so the road sign ends up turning, in, uh, turning the words to say caution ahead. And he says, give me a sign. And a giant work truck pulls out in front of him full of signs. Well, it's funny, I want you to understand how it helps me illustrate what I'm getting at. You see, our desired way for God to show up isn't always going to happen. And sometimes it leads us to become too distracted when we think that's the only way God shows up. We miss out on how God is trying to speak to us. Listening to God is a discipline. It's built around two unhurried rhythms that we've already talked about in this series God, the creator of everything, wants to speak to us. Understand that first truth. He wants to be uh, uh, in a relationship with us where we're inspired by his words and we're guided by his voice. But in order to do that, we have to root ourselves in a foundation. Again, that's based on two principles. They allow us to better understand and hear the will of God. And they are first, meditation, silence, and solitude. Now, if you were with us a few weeks ago when we talked about silence and solitude, you will know that I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old at home, and it's a WWE wrestling match every day. Silence and solitude is hard. I understand that. And I say from this podium right here, I'm not great at it every day. But I put in a practice most days where it's two minutes of silence with God. Pete Scazzaro walked through an emotionally healthy spirituality, this practice of a daily office where we spend time in silence and solitude with God. So what does it look like for you this week to take two minutes just to be still in the presence of him? The other way that we do this is by rooting ourselves deeply in scripture reading. 
See, God reveals himself through the word. And if we're not taking time to spend in his word, then how can we fathom what his will will truly be? Add it on to the two minutes of silence and solitude that you have with a brief scripture, a passage reading, a chapter, a book that you're trying to see the will of God in. The second practice that we have within communion is this time to talk to God. Talking to God can feel a bit intimidating, a little awkward for some of us. Like, what do I say? Or, or what does he even want me to say? How do I make my prayers not all about me and my desires, my longings, my wants, my needs? If that's you right now, take a deep breath and exhale. You see, the simplicity of talking to God is it's just that. It's talking to God. He truly desires to hear what's on your heart, your desires, and your longings. The book of Psalms is filled with examples of its authors just talking to God. Most notably, we hear from this guy, King David, and as he speaks to God, he cries out in lament, in praise, and in confession. When we want to conform our prayers to be in alignment with God, we ought to start from a place that shares that same desire, that of the psalmists. So what does it mean to lament, to praise, and confess to God, and how do we do that in alignment with our prayers? Well, first being lament, the Oxford Language Dictionary defines lament as the following, a passionate expression of grief and sorrow. Now, let me clarify, lamenting is not the same as crying. It's different. And in my honest opinion, it's uniquely Christian. You see, the Bible is filled with this song of sorrow. Over a third of the Psalms are laments. The book of Lamentations weeps over the destruction of Jerusalem, and Jesus lamented in the final hours of his life. Psalm 130 verse 1 says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. Psalm 6.3 says, My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Psalm 38, 9 through 11, all my longings lie open before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pounds, my strength fails me. Even the light has gone from my eyes. My friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. Again, lamenting is different than crying because lament is a form of a prayer. It's more than just this expression of sorrow and grief or, or venting of emotions. Lament talks to God about pain. And it has a unique purpose. And the purpose is this. It's trust. It has, it's this divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, our frustrations, our sorrows for the purpose of helping us renew the confidence in God and our covenant with him. When we commune with God, we have this opportunity to lament to God, like David did. A second way that we can talk to God is through praise. You see, God is glorified by the praises of his people. And the Psalms have been this blueprint for his praise for the last several thousand years, right? The word psalm is simply translated to this from Hebrew, meaning song. Throughout the centuries, many songs have been written based on this soaring language found in the Psalms. 
The music, the melody of their words themselves draw us closer to God, understanding his beauty in creation. Instead of me teaching you how to do it, I figure we take a note from David himself. I'm telling you right now, it's lengthy, but watch and listen with me as I read out a psalm of praise of David, 145. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Our generation, one generation commends you uh, your, and your works to another and tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of your great glory, of your kingdom, and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He he hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. And everyone said, amen. That's a mouthful. But that's the perfect example of what it looks like to praise God for who he is and who he promises to be for us. Instead of forcing in this sentence of gratitude, God, thank you for my wife. Thank you for my job. All right, let me get to my stuff. What would it look like to just slow down? To refer back to Psalm 145, to give praise and thanks for what God is doing in your life and continues to promise to do. And I'm reminded of the simplicity that we're taught as kids to thank God through prayer. And I've learned this, again, through my kids as they, uh, they were taught a, a song uh, to do so, a prayer. So let me take a, a sip of water here. Don't judge it if it's awful. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for our food, for our food, and our many blessings, and our many blessings. Amen. Amen. The simplicity of it is God wants our praise. God wants to hear how he's been faithful because we have a jealous God. We have a jealous God that loves us so much he would sacrifice everything so we could be in a relationship. God is faithful and worthy of our praise. Slow down. When you don't know what to say, read a psalm, a psalm of David, 145. The third component and practice of communion is the act of repentance. A true repentance leads a person to say, I have sinned first, 
but they prove it with a 180 degree change in their direction. Repentance requires true brokenness. And if you've never faced that, good for you, but I'm sorry because it hurts. Repentance is not asking the Lord uh, for forgiveness and then with the intent to sin again or do the same thing over and over. Repentance is this honest, regretful acknowledgement of sin with a commitment to change. See, repentance also leads us to cultivate godliness within so that we can eradicate habits that would tend to lead us towards sin. In the New Testament, the most often word for this, for repentance, is the word metanoia. It has two usual meanings. The first one is a change of mind, and the second one is regret or remorse. And in both books, Mark uh, and Matthew, Jesus begins his public proclamation with this call and response, repent and follow me, repent and follow me. In addition, Paul preaches this to both Jew and Gentile to turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. The second piece to understanding this whole repentance piece is, is confession. Confession of sin is both commanded and frequently illustrated. When one is guilty of various sins, he must confess in what ways he has sinned in order to receive this atonement of forgiveness. Thus, confession belongs to repentance and is needed for this divine forgiveness. Again, repentance is this act between God and us saying, hey, I I need forgiveness. Confession is the second piece that leads to accountability with a brother or sister in Christ. This, albeit, is hard and awkward and uncomfortable. It is crucial, crucial to our transformation in Christ. So how do, we, how do we practice this with God? Well, first, it's through regular prayer. And it's this admittance of where we fall short. Not to be consumed with guilt and shame from sin, but rather to be transformed by his love and forgiveness. Secondly, we do this by establishing what truly is an accountability partner. So we have a physical check-in here as we live life. You're basically giving somebody permission. When your 180 doesn't look so 180 anymore, they're going to call you on it. So instead of talking about it, I figured we'd just go around the room here in a minute. If we can get that mic ready, students, will you guys start? No? I'm kidding. You guys literally would have me thrown back to the student center never to return again. That's probably the last time we see that first time visitor. Instead, I do want to take some time to practice this really hard and uncomfortable component to communion, but I want to do so by using technology. Whether you're here in person with me or you're watching online, I'm going to ask you to grab your phone or a second device out right now. With your phone, I'm going to ask you to pull up your preferred web browser, and you're going to go to a website called menti.com, M-E-N-T-I.com, and you'll type the code that's located on the screen right now. Through the use of an anonymous text-in service, we as a family are going to have the opportunity to text in, again, anonymously, something that we want to get off of our chest, something that we want to repent to God in. In order to help get things started today, I'm actually going to do it in front of everybody. As Lindsay and Corbin lead us through two songs of worship, you'll have the opportunity to reflect on the words 
hear where God is calling you out and say, enough's enough, God, I need help. To let go of that grip that sin has on you and live in his truth, his love, his forgiveness. God, you are good and I fall short. Forgive me when I lose patience with my kids. God, you show patience that I don't even know how to comprehend with me. God, forgive me when I don't prioritize my first ministry, my family, those that you've entrusted me to lead towards you. God, forgive me when I put possessions before people. God, you are good and we are unworthy. It's in your name. Well, you did it. You, uh, you released the grip of that sin. And, and my challenge herein is the second piece of that. To experience that healing and restoration to its fullest, it's, it's taking the time to actually find somebody to hold you accountable, to confess. And, and I know it's, it's weird, it's awkward to be vulnerable sometimes, but my prayer and my hope is that you have somebody in your life that can do this with you. That you don't just vomit all of that all over them, but they actually can do the same to you. And together, you can live out a life of 180 degrees from that struggle in pursuit together with Jesus. See, the beautiful thing about repentance and confession is that process of healing that takes place afterwards. We get to enjoy that freedom of living out a life of forgiveness instead of being burdened by our sins. With any sin, I, I will tell you there comes a consequence. It's not fun sometimes. It's hard, I know. But that sin is not what defines you from that point forward in the eyes of God. It's a beautiful gift, forgiveness. And that is the fourth piece that we celebrate when we take communion, the opportunity to live out of that truth, that covenant therein of forgiveness. And forgiveness is hard. All right, oftentimes we are the ones that inhibit ourselves from truly experiencing forgiveness and forgiveness to the fullest. Now, I don't know about you, but that's really accurate for me. I have a hard time forgiving myself. I drag my own name through the mud a little bit too much sometimes. You know, we hit rock bottom, we experience sin's consequences, and if we're a follower of Jesus, we repent. We do that 180 of life, and then accept forgiveness through that, that is freely given to all of us. But we fail to experience that forgiveness because we ourselves inhibit us from experiencing it. We know without a shadow of a doubt that God sees us as forgiven and loved children. We can't find it in our own hearts to, uh, to see ourselves that way. And if that's you, I want you to hear me loud and clear. When we fail to forgive ourselves, it implies three things. That you set your own standard of achievement and failure. You are right and wrong. That you become your own judge and you become your own savior therein. 
A word of caution if this is where you find yourself right now. This would be considered the transactional relationship that God did not want us to have. As hard as it is to believe, there is nothing that you could do to earn his forgiveness and his love. We have the capacity to overcome sin and to experience true forgiveness because of the covenant and the promise through Christ and Christ alone. There's nothing that will ever be done in our own doing, our own power, but simply because Jesus died on the cross, that God ultimately would make that sacrifice. And as Lindsay just sang, it's because of Jesus that my heart is clean. And we take communion week in and, and week out, and it's an opportunity to be reminded of these four subtle practices, right? We give space each week in our service to refill the soul with the bread and the juice. Uh, communion is this opportunity to reset and recenter in alignment with God in that promise through Jesus. We do it as a weekly reminder in that covenant that we have in the relationship with God. Again, it's not because of anything that we will ever do, but it's all because of what has been done for us. You know, communion uh, reminds me of that phrase we use with our spouse, or at least I hope you use very often, I love you. Now, question for you is, does that phrase ever lose value the more and more you hear it or say it? Don't answer it if it does. I'm giving you a little bonus points there. We say it as a reminder, though, week in and week out, day in and day out, minute by minute, because it's a reminder of the foundation of the covenant we have with that person. It's a commitment that starts on love. That same thing is true of the covenant and commitment we have in communion. Because of love and that sacrifice, we know God. We are restored to fullness. It's through the bread and the juice that we're reminded of love that was outstretched on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. When we choose to live a life that is restored by forgiveness, we, we, we are freely given this through that cross. We begin to live a life in alignment with God. We begin to see ourselves how he sees us, perfect, whole, and his child. As we close today, what I want to do is, is take both elements uh, separately and pray over each one as a family. And I'll sit at a table and eat with you. So if you will, grab your bread and take as a family. Lord, as we take this bread... We remember that you are the bread of life. You feed our soul, you nourish our hearts, you give us sustenance to run the race before us. As we break the bread, we feel the softness of your love for us. We smell the fragrance of your grace that you give us freely each day. We thank you with our, all of our hearts for the great price that you paid when you were crucified on the cross for us. 
Yet just as the yeast has risen in this, bri- this bread, you rose again, triumphant over death, as Lord of lords and King of kings forever, and our beloved Savior. Amen. As a family, let's take and drink the juice. Lord, as we drink this juice, we remember that you are the giver of life. You are forgiveness and you bring deep peace to our souls and your love flows within us. As we pour out this juice, we see your sacrifice poured out for us. We notice the depth of your goodness and the pain that you suffered for us. We dwell upon the intricacies of human life and the price that you ultimately paid to set humanity free. Yet as the tombstone rolled away to unleash the risen Lord, your light shines in our hearts as well, extinguishing the darkness to release heaven's blessing on us. And everyone said, amen. Communion as a rule of life, again, retold in four simple ways, is a time to listen to God by practicing stillness in his presence and being present in the word. It's a time to talk to God It's opening up in your prayer life, practicing lament and praise. It's a time to repent, acknowledging that we fall short and finding an accountability partner to hold us in that 180 life change. It's an opportunity to live out of the truth of the forgiveness. We release release that grip of sin and live a life in fullness with God. Thank you, guys.